All right, we're going to get started. Um, good evening. Thank you everyone for logging on tonight. I'm Karen Rossiter, the manager and senior trainer here at Sphere. I want to welcome you to our webinar, Federal Spending and Debt. Is this a crisis? Hopefully we can answer that tonight. Not only is this topic interesting, but I think it's very timely and hopefully you can use this information in your classrooms. I'm looking forward to hearing from our expert panelists and following our discussion, we're gonna have Debbie Henney from FTE who will be demonstrating some of our uh, great lessons on this topic. So make sure you stay on even after the discussion with the panelists. Uh, before we start, I wanna let you know that we will be sending out a post-event email, which will include a video of tonight's discussion as well as all the resources that our presenters present and anything that's discussed. So we're gonna show graphs and slides and I'll include that in the email uh, sometime this week. Also, if um, you're new to our webinars, we will have a question and answer session at the end of the discussion. So please add your questions to the chat and we will get to them uh, during the question and answer portion. So please just uh, keep the conversation going. Now let's get started with some introductions so you get to know our panelists and where they're coming from. We're gonna start with Brian Riedel. He is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, focusing on budget, tax, and economic policy. Previously, he worked for six years as chief economist to Senator Rob Portman and as staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. During 2001 to 2011, Riedel served as the Heritage Foundation's lead research fellow on federal budget and spending policy. Brian's writing and research have been featured in, among others, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and the National Review. Riedel holds a bachelor's degree in economics and political science from the University of Wisconsin and a master's degree in public affairs from Princeton University. So welcome, Brian. We also have William Gale. He is the RJ and Francis Miller Chair in Federal Economic Policy and Senior Fellow in Economic Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. His research focuses on tax policy, fiscal policy, pensions, and saving behavior. He is co-director of the Tax Policy Center, which is a joint venture of the Brookings Institution and the Urban Institute. He has written extensively in policy-related publications and newspapers, including op-eds in CNN, The Financial Times, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post. Prior to joining Brookings in 1992, he was a senior economist for the Council of Economic Advisors under President George H.W. Bush. Gale attended Duke University in the London School of Economics and received his PhD from Stanford University. Welcome, William. And finally, Cato's very own Chris Edwards. Chris is the Director of Tax Policy Studies at Cato and editor of downsizinggovernment.org. He's a top expert on federal and state tax and budget issues. Before joining Cato, Edwards was a senior economist on the Congressional Joint Economic Committee a manager with PricewaterhouseCoopers and an economist with the Tax Foundation. Edwards has testified to Congress on fiscal issues many times and his articles on tax and budget policies have appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal and other major newspapers. He's the author of Downsizing the Federal Government and co-author of Global Tax Revolution. Edwards holds a BA in economics from the University of Waterloo and a master's in economics from George Mason University. When I said expert panelists, I was clearly not kidding. So welcome everyone. Uh, Ryan, why don't you get us started to go over some of the foundations of what we're discussing tonight. I know you have those great graphs uh, to go along with your discussion. 
And as all of us teachers know, we love a good graph. So Ryan, I'm gonna hand it over to you. Thank you, Karen. And thank you for everyone for being here. I'm just uh, setting up my charts right now. Got it, all good. Making sure the technology works. <laughs> We, we, we all teacher, have our, a lot of us are educators, so we understand tech, technology. We, we all have our own personal religion. horror stories. Um, <laughs> That's right. So assuming everyone can see mine, um, yep. I'm going to get started. I'm going to walk you through, uh, by the way, again, th thank you for spending part of your Tuesday evening uh, with us. I'm going to get started by walking through some charts on what the long-term debt and deficit drivers are. How bad is it and what's driving the problem? I'm going to start. Um, there we go. I'm, I'm going to start with the ten-year numbers, and this is the only one that's a table. It's, it'll get the charts will get prettier. Um, but what I want to show you right now is that we are in the midst right now of a historic increase in debt. The national debt was 17 trillion dollars before the pandemic, and it's on pace to go as high as 44 trillion dollars a decade from now. That's a $27 trillion increase in debt in about 12 years. Incomprehensible numbers. Now, most of that debt simply comes from the pandemic, which added about $6 trillion, and just the baseline, which will add $13 trillion. The baseline is just the cost of continuing today's programs and policies. Social Security, Medicare, um, it's the, today's tax code. This does assume that the, the most of the Trump tax cuts expire on schedule. Even that gets you from 17 to $35 trillion. And then when you add in things we've seen under President Biden, the American Rescue Plan, the infrastructure bill, possibly build back better, that's how you get up to $44 trillion. So the numbers are pretty staggering. Let's step back and look at the 30-year numbers, uh, which the Congressional Budget Office gives us, and some historical perspective. This is the national debt as a share of the economy, which is the way most economists look at debt to see if, if you can afford it. Just like a family looks at debt as a share of their household income, we look at debt as a share of national income. What you can see is that after World War II, the debt was 100% of GDP. It was a bigger than the entire economy. But the debt was gradually reduced over a couple decades by having mostly balanced budgets. Things have started inching up, though. Since 2007, we've gone from 35 to 98% of GDP. And the red area is pretty scary. We're going to go to 200% of GDP over the next 30 years. And this is the rosy scenario. This baseline scenario assumes no new tax cuts. In fact, it assumes the Trump tax cuts mostly expire, no new spending programs, and it assumes that interest rates stay low in terms of servicing that debt. If we have wars, big recessions, new spending programs, higher interest rates, it, the debt will go even higher. So what's driving this debt? Well, let's look at spending and revenues as a share of the economy. You can see that historically since 1960, we've run a lot of deficits. Because the blue line, spending, is usually higher than the red line, revenues. For the last 60 years, we've spent about 20% of GDP and taxed about 17% of GDP per year. By the way, you can see 
in 2020 and 2021, how big the number spikes. That's the pandemic. But the big thing is if you look long-term, the red line actually stays pretty steady. Revenues are gonna stay slightly above the historical average. They're gonna be about 18% of GDP. It's the blue line spending that is spiking and driving the debt, going all the way to 31.8% of GDP by 2051. So if you just measure by historical averages, the spending line is the one that's diverging the most from historical numbers. That doesn't mean that you can't support raising the red line to balance the budget, but just historic, you know, that's, that's, that's what's driving it. So let's take that spending and tax line and figure out what's causing it. This is the same thing of, of spending and revenue as a percent of the economy. The same things just filled in. You can see that defense spending is not really driving the long-term debt. Down here in yellow, it's actually declining. Same with non-defense discretionary spending like education, a lot of anti-poverty programs, housing, foreign aid, they're not driving the debt. The biggie is the red. Social security and healthcare entitlements are going to expand immensely, far beyond what these programs collect. And the deficits they cause is gonna make the debt bigger and drive up interest. That's why the blue gets bigger because the structural deficits cause a bigger debt, which causes higher interest costs. So really, it's that red area, social security and healthcare driving the debt. If you just kind of take, take this look again at a historical look at the federal budget since 1962, here is the share of the budget that we've spent in different areas. You can see defense spending was half the budget under JFK. It's about 15% of the budget now. Anti-poverty has gotten somewhat bigger. Interest has gone up. Other programs have been squeezed. The big area, Social Security and Medicare. I mean, Medicare didn't even exist in 1962. It was created in 65. But you see the gradual increase in the share of the budget going to Social Security and Medicare. So this is a short-term view of the budget. This is 2008 until 2031, adjusted for inflation. So the last 13, 14 years and the next 10 years, according to the Congressional Budget Office baseline. What you see again is that if you adjust for inflation, most parts of the budget, other than that big spike in the middle with the pandemic, are, are somewhat flat. Defense, non-defense discretionary, other entitlements, somewhat flat. It's the red area, social security and health entitlements that are gonna go from one and a half trillion per year to three and a half trillion per year. Huge increase. So let's kind of, before we conclude, let me just kind of dive a little bit more into social security and Medicare since that's really driving the 30 year deficit. Over the next 30 years, the Congressional Budget Office says we're gonna run $112 trillion in deficits. Really amazing, 112 trillion. The national debt held by the public now is about 23 trillion. We're gonna add 112 trillion more just from the baseline. If you wanna adjust this by inflation, cut it by a third. Where is that coming from? 
Social Security is going to run a $35 trillion cash shortfall if you include the interest costs. Medicare is going to run a $78 trillion cash shortfall if you include the interest cost. And the rest of the budget kind of breaks even. The rest of the budget runs some deficits for the first 15 years and some surpluses for the next 15 years. But really, it's a Social Security and Medicare shortfalls that are driving the deficit. This is somewhat predictable. If you take a look at how much people, the median family retiring today, pays into these programs and gets out, you'll see that the typical family retiring today comes out a little bit ahead in Social Security. These numbers, by the way, are adjusted for net present value, which means they're adjusted not only for things like inflation and, and the value of money over time, the average family comes out a little bit ahead in Social Security and way ahead in Medicare. In fact, the typical family is going to get back triple what they paid in into Medicare. That's one reason the Medicare shortfall is bigger than the Social Security shortfall. You have rising health care costs and people getting back triple what they paid in. You multiply that by 74 million baby boomers, the numbers get pretty huge. So... By 30 years from now, what's the federal budget going to look like? According to the Congressional Budget Office, the Social Security and Medicare systems are going to be bringing in 6% of GDP in payroll taxes and similar revenues, but costing 21% of GDP in benefits, as well as the interest costs on the debt that are directly attributable to these deficits. So these two systems alone are going to be running a shortfall of 15% of GDP. The rest of the budget is going to be running a slight surplus. So again, the long-term problem is mostly a Social Security and Medicare problem. That doesn't mean that, that you only have to support Social Security and Medicare changes to fix the problem. You are free to support doubling taxes, tripling taxes, cutting other programs, Wherever your values go, you can, you know, you can believe what you want. Um, uh, I don't, I'm not judging that. But in terms of what is actually driving the problem, 15% of GDP shortfall for Social Security and Medicare. That's, that's where we're at. That's the 30-year numbers. Um, I've thrown a lot of numbers in charts, so um, I'll, I'll happy to dive back into any of these during the Q&A. And that... Um, We'll turn it over to uh, Bill Gale. Yes, thank you so much, Brian. Those graphs were really helpful. And I think that um, teachers can use that in the classroom as well, because I think the visuals are very clear. Uh, not all good news, but they're very clear. Um, so Bill, what would you like to add to this conversation? Because you're you have actually some um, solutions as well, so. There you go. Great, uh, thank you. It's uh, policy wonks dream come true to have everybody gathered together on a Tuesday night uh, to talk about this stuff. And uh, I appreciate being uh, invited. Uh, I have a number, as you can see, it's sort of notes. It's more than a set of notes rather than a systematic uh, uh, treatise. Uh, but let me just start with the history uh, let me just say the numbers you saw are all correct. There's no dispute among the three of us about the numbers. 
so uh, what I'm trying to do is provide interpretations. I'm not presenting a new set of numbers. Uh, but deficits and debt, uh, until Ronald Reagan, uh, in the first 200 years of the, of the Republic, basically deficits were caused by wars, uh, defense buildup during wars or during the Great Depression. And then after the wars, defense spending fell and uh, typically we ran some surpluses and we got the debt to GDP back down. Uh, Reagan's tax cuts and defense buildup were the first time we had uh, peacetime prosperity increases in debt. The graphs you saw showed debt going up from the mid 20s percent of GDP to 48% of GDP over the course of the 1980s. Uh, that was set in place by Reagan's uh, policies. Uh, and then, uh, since then, uh, not only were Reagan's policies different from the past, but since then it's been very different. Uh, the debt to GDP ratio was 39% in 2008. Uh, it's risen to over 100% now, almost as high, maybe even higher now uh, as then in, in the Second World War. And this hasn't had anything to do with defense. It's been the, the financial crisis, the recession, COVID and the recession it caused, the relief packages, the Trump tax cuts added some and so on. Uh, in, the, in the future, uh, as you saw, you'll have persistent and rising uh, primary deficits, which are the deficit, the deficit is all spending minus taxes. The primary deficit is non-interest spending minus taxes. And the reason we tend, we like to, to separate that from the interest rate, from the interest expense that the government has is that the interest rate uh, has a tremendous effect on the net interest the government pays. Uh, whereas the rest of the budget is more uh, uh, policy oriented, policy-based. All right, so while we're talking about this, let's talk about why we care about deficits and debt. And uh, uh, I have a contribution from my high school English uh, class, the Ernest Hemingway novel, The Sun Also Rises. One character says to the other, how did you go bankrupt? And the other says two ways, gradually and then suddenly. And that's basically the concern with debt. Let's take the sudden scenario first. Uh, the idea here is that rising debt could in principle cause a crisis. Uh, in financial markets, let me just say at the outset, I don't think that's likely for the United States. We can pay our debt for decades to come. We issue debt in our own currency. Uh, the world wants to hold U.S. debt. That's why interest rates are so low right now. Uh, I mentioned the 2008 example. What happened in 2008 was we created a financial crisis. We exported it to the rest of the world. And the world responded by sending money here and investing in the U.S. because it was a relatively safe uh, place to invest. So I'm not too worried about the sudden scenario about us becoming Argentina or, or something like that. Uh, with the one caveat that policymakers could cause us to happen if they don't raise the debt ceiling. Uh, if they, they, could, they could induce a default, even though we have uh, plenty of resources to, to pay. Uh, the debt for decades to come. The, that doesn't mean there's no issue. It just means that the gradual issue is the one you have to be concerned about. And that is more debt places burdens on uh, our children and, 
and their children. Uh, it does this by crowding out capital investment by raising the interest rate, uh, causing uh, uh, other investment to decline. One of my colleagues famously referred to this as termites in the woodwork, kind of eating away at the foundation uh, of the economy. Uh, it also, of course, it increases uh, in net interest payments or debt service payments in the future. But this effect depends tremendously on interest rates. And the fact that interest rates are low right now, uh, I don't wanna say they're gonna stay low for 30 years, but low interest rates right now give us some elbow room, some running room, some, some space uh, to, to some time to address uh, these, these issues. It's also important to note that not all debt is bad. Uh, if you think about an individual, they can take on debt for good reasons, buy a mortgage, start a business, uh, whatever. Uh, likewise, uh, an economy, uh, if it does have to go to war, it should finance it with debt. Uh, if it, there are major investments in human and physical capital that the, that the government makes, either infrastructure or uh, investing in children, for example, uh, uh, it makes sense to finance some of that with debt since the benefits are gonna be uh, uh, coming in over time. And of course, anti-recession policy, the whole point of stimulus is to, is to uh, 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 increase spending, which would require the government uh, to take on debt. Uh, the other thing to note is the debt is only one thing we pass along to future generations. We pass along infrastructure, we pass along environment, the education system, the healthcare system. So for the government, as well as for the individuals, how the money is spent is essential. It's not just that there's more debt, it's that it's being spent on consumption items, uh, uh, Social Security and Medicare, for example, as, as was mentioned uh, before. So the, again, debt is just one side of the coin. What the government does with the money is the other side. And if it's doing good things with the money, then the debt uh, is more justified than if it's doing bad things uh, with the money. So let me talk about some key spending facts. Uh, you can deduce these from the graphs that um, Harayan showed you, but I'll mention them anyway. Uh, typically about 70% of federal spending is one of four items, social security, uh, healthcare, the military and interest payments. And healthcare includes here, not just Medicare, but Medicaid, uh, the subsidies that are associated with the uh, uh, Obamacare and so on. But these four items tend to, tend to comprise about 70% of federal spending. Uh, in the next 10 years, though, they're, uh, depending on which baseline you use and which 10-year period you use, uh, they're over 100% of the increase in spending as a share of the economy. Uh, and it's really not defense, as was mentioned. It's Social Security, healthcare, and interest interest payments. Of course, um, we can decry these as not future-oriented payments, uh, as consumption-oriented payments, but but they play important roles. Social Security accounts for more than half of the income for 40% of the elderly, uh, and more than 90% of income for a sizable, a significant minority. Uh, uh, health Medicaid and CHIP, uh, which is also included in healthcare, child's, children's health insurance program, uh, provide healthcare to almost half of all US kids. 
So, uh, and there's evidences that that investment in kids and low-income workers, EITC, actually do pay economic and fiscal dividends over time. So this money is not being wasted. Uh, it's providing a lot of support and it's providing some investment uh, in the future. But if you wanna cut spending, uh, you need to focus on these four, uh, you know, uh, uh, defunding Big Bird is not, is not going to do anything. It's rounding error. Uh, that leads me to the next point. I think it's people often characterize deficits as a spending problem. And you can see why from Parian's charts, spending is going up and taxes are not. But that doesn't mean it's a spending problem. Uh, the deficit, by definition, is an imbalance between taxes and spending. And the analogy I like to use is which side of the scissors uh, does the cutting. Uh, you can say Social Security and Medicare are benefits that people earned over the course of their lifetime. They're not, um, they're, they don't represent ex an expansion of the role of government. They simply represent the playing out of commitments that were made decades ago uh, and now because the demographic bubble uh, is they're going up. There are other reasons, but that's the main reason. So you could argue that the cause of the, these projected deficits is that politicians have chosen not to pay for these uh, commitments that they knew years or decades ago were coming down the pike. Uh, and so just as a matter of logic, uh, you'll hear people say it's a spending problem. It's an imbalance uh, uh, issue. It's also a classic political uh, problem. Uh, if you think about, about how deficit reduction works, the benefits accrue sometime later in time uh, in terms of a better economy. And they accrue to people who don't have a vote right now. Either they're too young or they're not even born yet. Uh, whereas the costs would be imposed sooner. Uh, the costs are concentrated uh, in certain groups. For example, if we raise taxes for certain groups, Whereas the benefits are diffuse, uh, you know, everyone benefits from a better economy. Mansur Olson, who was an economist, University of Maryland, talked about these kind of policies and how in the political system, the people, the concentrated uh, parties who have the costs imposed on them lobby against uh, the policy and the people who are gonna get the benefits don't have enough incentive to lobby in favor of the policy, so the policy fails. Um, I think there's another problem too, which is that the benefits, which are a better economy, are hard to link directly to the policies. And what I mean here is, if, you, if there's an earthquake and it knocks down a building and you walk by this pile of rubble, it, it's pretty clear in your head that the earthquake caused the building to collapse. Right. But if you walk by an empty lot, it requires a lot of uh, uh, kind of mental effort to decide that that lot is empty because the government borrowed a lot of money and that raised interest rates and therefore no one can invest in, in that lot. But that's the nature of the cost of of higher debt. It's sort of what you don't see rather than what you do see. Um, the other pro there, there are two other problems on the political side. One is that Americans are schizophrenic about this. They hate debt, but they also oppose most of the policies uh, that, that would solve the problem. And the last thing that's a problem is the solution needs 
to be bipartisan. And the reason is that uh, a solution that needs to be so big that everybody's ox is gonna get gored. And each party needs to be able to blame the other party for the parts that their party doesn't like. You know, we, we you know, I'm sorry, Mr. Constituent, we did everything we could, but the other side said we couldn't get a deal unless we actually cut your benefits and they cut everyone. That's the nature of a solution. And of course, right now, uh, bipartisanship is pretty hard to find on the uh, on the Hill. All right, so let's talk briefly about solutions. Uh, let's first cut away a lot of the things that are not solutions, all right? We don't need to balance the budget permanently. That would require, that would imply debt to GDP falling forever. And uh, debt is is not all bad. And in fact, right now, the, the world wants more US debt as evidenced by lower interest rates. We certainly don't want to eliminate debt. That was kind of uh, Andrew Jackson idea. Uh, it's, not, it's not helpful. A, a moderate amount of debt, as Hamilton said, could be a blessing for the, for the country. And I just absolutely draw the line. We do not want a constitutional amendment for balanced budget for many reasons. It's a bad economic idea, but also there's enough ways to finagle the budget that, that it would be virtually impossible uh, to enforce. All right, so when people see the graphs that you saw earlier, they start squirming and they try to come up with painless solutions. And the first one is always, well, let's cut foreign aid. Polls suggest that people think that foreign aid is between a quarter and a third of the federal budget. It's actually less than 1% of the federal budget. Uh, another solution is inflation. That's what countries like Argentina do. Uh, to try to inflate their way out of the debt. Basically, if the price level rises, that reduces the inflation-adjusted value of government bonds and hence reduces the value of the outstanding debt. Uh, that will not work for a number of reasons in the U.S. I can explain that. It's a little technical, but if anyone's interested, I'd be happy to talk about it. Uh, tax cuts, the, the, the so-called Laffer curve suggests if you cut taxes, you'll raise revenues. Uh, that has not been the case for broad-based tax cuts in the U.S., and you cannot tax cut your way to fiscal responsibility. Uh, economic growth will help, no question, but it's really hard to get out of the numbers that you saw in the earlier presentation with by growing the economy faster. And I'll just give you one example why. If the economy grows faster, wages go up more, which means social security benefits go up more. So there are these offsets uh, uh, that, that occur. A growth will help, but it's not a panacea. What are the real solutions? Well, the obvious one is entitlement reform, uh, entitlement meaning social security and Medicare. Uh, I think at the same time, we can afford to invest more in human and public capital, uh, uh, sorry, human and physical capital uh, and uh, I feel like there's no way around raising revenues, restructuring taxes, redistributing tax burdens. Uh, I listed a few examples here uh, to be just to be concrete about what I'm talking about. Uh, there's enormous potential to raise taxes uh, on wealthy households uh, in the income tax, the capital gains, uh, in the corporate tax, and the estate inheritance tax, which was sort of gutted in 2017. Um, a crackdown on evasion uh, could generate a lot of money. More than half of the income of farm and sole proprietorships 
uh, is not reported to the IRS. I mean, that's that's 16% of all income. That's like 3% of GDP and revenues that's lost. And then the carbon tax, um, there's been a lot of talk about how a carbon tax would destroy coal communities or coal states. Uh, uh, I did a calculation a couple of years ago that showed that we could pay every coal miner in the country $250,000 and it would cost 1% of the 10 year revenue uh, from a carbon tax. All right, let me just show you, uh, one, I'll, this graph just shows that tax revenue as a share of GDP has gone up immensely in the US from 2% before World War I to 17% in the post-World War II period. But the per capita growth rate uh, has stayed about the same. And then if you don't like the time series, you can look at a cross section. This graph shows that from 1970 to 2015, taxes in European countries were about a third higher than in the US. And this includes all taxes here, federal, state, local, uh, for comparability purposes. And the per capita growth rate uh, was still about the same. So in my view, we can raise taxes and not destroy the economy. And uh, 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 let me leave it at that. And let me just say, last in the last act of shameless self-promotion, if you'd like to know more, uh, there's a book that I can highly recommend. <laughs> That's so, awesome. Thank you. Uh, what I can't do is figure out how to get out of this. Uh, okay. Yeah, you got it. I think you have it. And then just end screen sharing. There you go. You got it. Thank all you. Right. Thank you so much. Um, all right, Chris, it's your turn. What would you, you have a lot of information there. What would you like to add to both those presentations? And then we'll jump into, I have a bunch of questions, so. Thanks, thanks a lot, Karen, and thanks a lot uh, for Brian and Bill uh, for being here. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed and appreciated and learned a lot from both your works uh, uh, over the years. Uh, the uh, Both Brian and Bill have really great uh, PowerPoint uh, packages, uh, charts, more than they showed tonight. Uh, I'd highly suggest you check those out. They're really great. I'm going to do something a little different. I'm not going to give you any more data. I'm going to uh, look at some big picture sort of opinions on government spending. Uh, federal spending. I'm going to give you my point of view. Feel free to disagree uh, and ask the tough questions during the, the, the question and answer period. That, that would be, that's, that's quite fine. So more government spending will require higher taxes either now or uh, in the future, and that will reduce uh, overall GDP uh, because extracting taxes causes distortions to the private economy. Uh, also, government spending itself reduces GDP uh, because government can't allocate resources as well as markets. You know, if uh, how much, say, wine versus beer is produced in the United States is decided by direct customer feedback uh, and the price system. But how does the federal government, say, decide to spend more money on either uh, more fighter jets for the military or new entitlement programs? Uh, it, there's really no good and efficient way to make those sorts of decisions. At best, it's guesswork. Uh, and at worst, uh, politics uh, undermines efficient government investment spending. Uh, to give you one example, uh, the big infrastructure bill passed in November uh, allocated another $60 billion to Amtrak. Well, experts think that Amtrak, we would get the most bang for the buck from new Amtrak investment in the Northeast Corridor where there's a, a dense population. But a lot of Amtrak investment goes to rural states uh, where it really doesn't make either economic or environmental sense 
uh, to have passenger rail. So th there's often in many programs this difference between what is efficient and what is uh, politically possible. When thinking about federal spending, you've also got to think about the difference between marginal benefits and average benefits. So supporters of federal infrastructure spending often say things like, you know, the, the interstate highway system is valuable, therefore we should spend more on it. But that's sort of a, a non sequitur. You know, as we invest more in highways, the marginal value of each additional uh, amount of investment falls. So more isn't necessarily better uh, in, in these uh, spending programs. It's the same say with social security. Overall, the social security uh, program creates uh, a lot of benefits, but then at the margin, should we really be spending, uh, uh, paying out social security benefits to rich people like Bill Gates? Uh, I think not, but so there's a difference between the overall benefits of program and the marginal benefits of continuing to expand them. Uh, lawmakers uh, often uh, say that their new spending proposals are really crucial, but you know, governments in the United States already spend more than a third of the GDP. And I would uh, always ask, well, if your proposal is really crucial, then why isn't government doing that thing uh, already? So I'd like to see more trade-offs in Washington. You know, if Republicans want to spend more on defense, they should, you know, find ways like, say, cutting corporate subsidies to offset those additional costs. Another really important thing that I, I focus on a lot at the Cato Institute, uh, uh, when you think about spending, you need to think about federalism. You know, the separation of proper government spending functions between the federal government and state and local government. Government spending in America has become much more centralized. Uh, the federal government is, is uh, increasingly intervening in traditionally state local areas like the K-12 schools. So you wind back the clock to 1930, uh, just one quarter of government spending in America was federal, but today two thirds of, federal, of, of all government spending uh, is federal. So it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, I grew up in Canada and Canadian federalism is flipped from American federalism in Canada just one third of all government spending is at the federal level, two thirds is provincial local. So in Canada, for example, there is no federal department of education. Uh, the federal government doesn't provide K-12 subsidies, subsidies at all. Uh, I think that sort of decentralized federation uh, makes more sense. Uh, so what are some of the problems with centralization of spending in Washington? Uh, one thing that I think is, is we, we see this uh, all the time, is this idea of federal overload. As the federal government has uh, got larger and larger, uh, its performance deteriorates, uh, at least in, in my view. The federal government uh, currently runs more than 2,300 different subsidy or benefit programs. Uh, the federal budget, even pre-pandemic, was 100 times greater than the, the size of the average state uh, government budget. So it's just this, uh, there's this vast array of programs, and it seems to me federal lawmakers don't really have the time to weed out and fix the programs that aren't working very well. Federal law, lawmakers spend much of their time, uh, you know, on, on political issues and fundraising and things like that, rather than making sure that all these programs work well. I think that there's a, a one of the problems with centralizing uh, spending power uh, in Washington uh, it, is that it undermines democracy. When you, for example, move uh, K-12 spending from state and local governments up to Washington, 
you're moving decision making from elected local officials to unelected federal officials. So I, I think that there's a, a democratic issue there that is important. Uh, I think centralization of government spending squelches beneficial diversity between the states. Uh, you know, people in the different states have uh, different preferences. State governments can better tailor their policies to the needs of their state residents. And I think when the federal government gets involved in activities, it tends to impose one size fits all solutions that doesn't make sense. I mean, a good recent example of this is that President Biden has proposed a national family paid leave program. Uh, nine states already have their own paid leave programs that they support with their own tax revenues. Other states have decided not to, not to uh, enact such programs. I think those sort of differences are fine. I think it's fine if states tailor their own uh, domestic policies uh, like that by themselves. Uh, I also think you know, that everyone's concerned about the increasing bitterness uh, in uh, political divisions in the nation. And I do think what, the more we amass power in Washington, the more decisions are made in Washington, or the, the more we're trying to sort of impose one size fits all solution on a nation that is really people in different states have different preferences and needs. And I think by trying to ram all these uh, decisions through Washington, it increases uh, divisions. So I'm gonna conclude there. Um, you know, I guess one of my takeaways uh, is that much federal, much federal spending today is for things that states can and should be doing uh, for themselves. Uh, in supporting the recent infrastructure bill, uh, Republican Senator Rob Portman said, quote, upgrading infrastructure is especially important for Ohio, unquote. Well, if that's true, then why doesn't the Ohio legislature handle the problem? Uh, Senator Portman should call his friends in the Ohio legislature get them to fund more infrastructure. You know, all these decisions and spending that doesn't have to be done from Washington. Uh, so to conclude, you know, Brian and Bill noted that, you know, the federal government uh, is heavily in debt. I think part of the solution is to move some of these programs back to the state level because state governments are generally required to balance their budgets and limit uh, their debt. Again, thanks a lot, uh, everyone for tuning in and thanks to uh, Bill and Brian uh, for giving us their expert opinions. Thank you so much, Chris. And thank you for bringing up um, state level as well, because that was going to be one of my questions. So I really appreciate that. Uh, Brian and Bill, do you have any response to anything that Chris said, or do you want to add anything? There's a ton of questions coming in. So um, if you don't, if you want to respond to Chris, and then we can jump into the questions. I know, uh, Bill, you've been answering them slowly. So I appreciate that in the chat. But do you have any response to what Chris said? Or no, let's Brian, go, I saw let's you shaking your head, so I knew you agreed with some of it. <laughs> go ahead, Bill. Sorry. Let's just, let's just go to questions. Oh, okay. So I'm just going to go through them, and then um, we have about 15 minutes, so I think we can get through some of them if we keep the answers short and to the point. I'm going to start with one. Is eliminating or reducing student debt then equitable to investment in human capital? Do you see this is actually happening? Happening, because I know it's a popular topic, right? So, um, eliminating or reducing student debt—would you consider that investment in human capital? I, I'll give you two. I'm not an expert on student debt, but I will give you two sort of issues that always strike me. I've got two kids in college now, and uh, you know, colleges cost a lot of money. Uh, we saved up for many years to uh, afford it. It does strike me too, there's two issues of fairness that I think should get more discussion. You know, one is a lot of folks uh, for various reasons decide not to go to college. 
And, um, you know, they end up being productive taxpayers, you know, most of them. Uh, and ultimately, you know, their taxes may, you know, help fund some of these government programs for people to go to college to become lawyers and accountants and earn more money than them. Than, than them. So there's that fairness issue. Then there's also the fairness issue. If I pay for my kids college and they graduate, uh, hopefully in uh, four years from now, uh, I will pay tens of thousands of dollars out of my pocket for it. Then if the government comes in and, eliminate, and eliminates the, you know, the debt of some people and not others, or some people just finished paying off their students uh, debt for past college, uh, and, you know, they had to pay for the college, but then in the future, a similar sort of student, the government pays it off. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of uh, fairness issues here that we really need to discuss on that. Great. Anybody, does anybody else want to comment? Sure. Um, I think, you know, um, the, uh, the way college is financed in this country is, uh, the problem here, student debt is the the, the symptom, if you will. Uh, a lot of the student debt ended up being uh, for, for you know for-profit schools. I'm not worried about the MD that comes out of medical school with 150,000 in debt, but I am worried about people who come out of beautician school you know, with $20,000 of debt or $30,000 of debt, and they probably, or they didn't finish, right? I mean, there, there's, I think there's a fair amount of evidence that once the government created these loans, these loan options, that schools basically used students, for-profit schools used students as a way to suck the loan revenue uh, out of the government and basically didn't give them a good a good return. Uh, the fairness issues, as Chris mentioned, are are all over this, uh, and uh, it seems to me there could be some intermediate uh, solution when um, uh, uh, to you know forgive the first ten thousand or something, but change the financing system at the same time so we don't end up in this situation again. Great, thank you. Um, I think we'll move to the next question. We're kind of shifting gears because I want to make sure we get all these topics covered. So as we seem to be in an ongoing MMT experiment, could the panelists please address modern monetary theory and their thoughts on its viability as a long-term model? <laughs> Brian had an excellent uh, recent study um, on, on issues of of the cost of uh, financing uh, federal government uh, debt and the possible rise in interest rates in the future. So I'm gonna kick it over to Brian on, uh, uh, on, uh, for this question. Yeah. Oh boy, um, <laughs> MMT is really popular in certain quarters. Um, it's almost impossible to find an economist who believes in MMT. Um, I mean, the idea that, there's a couple of problems with it. First, the idea, MMT is essentially the idea that because we can print our own money, therefore we should print our own money. And we should, you know, we can pay for spending and keep the economy going by essentially running the printing press. I think most economists would tell you that concerns that this would not create hyperinflation are probably incorrect. Um, historically, globally, there are huge, there are large examples of, of large inflation when you try to print that much money. And I would add, 
when you talk to academic MMT theorists, they, they, they acknowledge the inflation problem, but say the way you deal with inflation is by raising taxes. You spend money through the printing press, and then when there's too much inflation, you pull money out by raising taxes, and then essentially the equivalent of burning the dollars. But the problem with that is, is politically, are members of Congress really going to raise taxes during periods of, of, of high inflation when the economy is on the fritz, people are struggling, inflation is high? Generally, that's not the moment where I would trust elected officials to responsibly, according to MMT, raise taxes and pull it out of the economy. This is why the developed world relies on independent central banks to manage money supply that's as shielded from politics as possible because politicians, if you put them in charge of monetary policy, they're gonna give you all the dessert and they're not gonna give, make you eat any of that vegetables. And so M MMT is very alluring because it's a bit of a free lunch, but it, most of the studies supporting MMT are not particularly peer reviewed. Um, they don't really have a lot of academic backing and most people who, who do this for a living don't take MMT seriously. That was great, thank you. I'll just add, I have found it very hard to understand whether MMT is meant to be a description of how the world actually works or how they would like the world to work. Uh, uh, this issue about raising taxes in response to inflation uh, is certainly not uh, empirically grounded. Uh, and they, the, uh, I find it very hard to, I mean, they make a point that's correct, which is we can print our own money. So we, we would never literally have to default. The problem is a whole raft of terrible things could happen between here and actual default. And the fact that we don't ever technically need to default because we could go into hyperinflation, hyperinflation is not much consolation. Thank you. I think you guys did a great job of covering that in a really precise and clear way. So thank you. Um, shifting gears yet again, but I think this is a question because everybody always talks about the baby boomers and their generation. So um, as the baby boomer generation and their greatest counterparts leave us, how much will that alleviate some of our spending? And on the flip side, should we worry about the declining birth rates we keep seeing in the news and the next generations? I, I can take that. I mean, right, the, thank that, you. There's, there's a theory that if, if the baby boomer bulge is, is causing the fiscal problem, maybe it's kind of like when a snake devours a bigger animal and the bulge just kind of passes right through. The problem is, if you look at the long-term numbers, it really doesn't get better even after the baby boomers leave us. Um, and that's, I mean, this is kind of morbid talking about. Social security generally has its deficits level off at about 1.8% of GDP long-term, even after the baby boomers leave, in part because over time, social security benefits actually become slightly more generous over a lifetime. Um, uh, initial benefits that you begin with actually grow faster than inflation and people live longer. So whatever benefit you get demographically from that, you kind of give it back in terms of longer lifespans and the generational growth and automatic initial benefits. And then when it comes to Medicare, rising healthcare costs is driving the problem as much as demographics. And until we get a handle on that, e e demographics aren't going to save us. Thank you.
Thank you. I mean, we keep hearing about the baby boomers, but that's that's a good point. Bill, did you have anything to add, or I didn't know if you wanted to add something? Uh, just that the the birth the declining birth rate is a concern uh, because these programs are all financed as a pay as you go basis. So the mm -hmm. workers, current year workers, what what we all pay in payroll taxes, it doesn't build up in a bank account. It goes right back out the door to current year beneficiaries. And uh, demography is destiny in programs like this. So uh, uh, this is why people, one of the reasons people care about immigration so much is that it could alleviate some of the pressure on these entitlement uh, programs. Absolutely, thank you. Um, well, this hopefully this question has a positive answer, but has any country managed to continuously increase their debt in the trajectory of the current <laughs> of the current USA without ending an economic disaster? Japan. Okay. Debt uh, to GDP ratio was something like I don't know high one hundreds, two hundred percent. This is their their net debt, not their gross debt, mm -hmm. uh, and. Uh, this has happened during a demographic uh, transition for them. So their economy hasn't been great overall, but it's not because their productivity has fallen, it's because their population structure has shifted, but they've got very high debt and very low interest rates. Right now. They, uh, I know Brian has written about this and I'll pass it over to him. I mean, one thing about Japan is Japan is a nation, uh, their businesses and individuals have very high savings rates. And so most of the Japanese government debt has been funded um, domestically. So they've been able to, to cover it a little. A second, a second issue is that, you know, even if we don't hit a fiscal crisis, the empirical studies, and there's been a couple dozen of them now, are pretty clear that once debt gets around uh, 100% or so, it starts rising above 100% of the GDP, um, you know, economic growth does slow. I don't think economists have a very good idea of the mechanisms why that happens, but it does seem to be pretty clear when you compare across countries. And the last uh, sort of data point I would say is that, you know, the United States is actually one of the, uh, the countries amongst the, the major rich countries in the OECD that is most in debt. If you look at uh, data from the OECD, the, um, the, the organization of 35 or so wealthy countries, uh, our state and federal debt together is around 140% of GDP today. Uh, the average in the OECD is only around 100% of GDP. So, uh, you know, I figure if there's if, if countries like um, Korea and Canada and the like can run their economies and have high income economies and have substantially lower debt than us, then, you know, why can't we do it too? Uh, you know, all debt is pushing costs onto the future. And I always think the fairness issue there, I think the fairness issue there is that people in the future are going to have their own crises. They may have health crises. They may have war, um, you know, God forbid. There may be other crises down the road where future governments have to borrow. So uh, we shouldn't be throwing the costs of our crises on people in the future. They're going to have their own problems to deal with. Let me just add, this is where the politics come in. Uh, in parliamentary systems, uh, parliamentary systems are designed to make things happen. Our system is designed to stop big things from happening unless uh, there's very broad consensus. And that was an, I mean, that was an intentional decision of the, the founding fathers. And, and so it's good when, uh, when there are things that 
maybe politicians want to do that we think are bad, but it makes acting uh, on these big issues much harder than it is in a parliamentary system. I'm always amused when the new, the new, the winners of the election in the UK come in and say, okay, here are the new policies, right? It just, that would just never happen in here. And, you know, things are routinely called dead on arrival on the Hill, et cetera. So the political issues uh, actually uh, bind here. Great, thank you. So we have three minutes left. And I guess what I wanna do from here is have each of you just briefly, one minute each at this point, you know, the whole question of this is, is it a crisis? Um, should we be worried? So if you could just in a minute, kind of sum up where you think we are and if we do need to do something, what, what do we need to do? So I know you all differ about, you agree on a lot of that, but you also differ on a lot of that. So if you can, um, whoever wants to start, Brian, do you wanna start since you started our night out? Sure, sure. thank you. <laughs> thank you. I think we're in a dire situation because by the time we, it's going to take a long time to turn around the ship. It's not like we can just keep spending now and turn it around in 10 years. If most of the problem is social security and Medicare and retiring baby boomers, you don't want to wait until the baby boomers are 80 years old and retired before you reform things. Step one, stop digging, uh, stop passing big debt. Step two, lock in today's low interest rates with long-term loans. Right now we rely on short-term debt, which is any homeowner can tell you is dumb when interest rates might rise in the future. And then third, start to gradually look at social security and Medicare reform that can be done very gradually over time rather than something drastic. And this is gonna surely include some tax increases are, are gonna have to be part of the solution. And we're gonna have to hold the line on all other parts of spending, including defense too. And everything has to be on the table, but I would rather do something a little more gradual now rather than wait five, 10 years and have to do drastic reforms on the most vulnerable. I'll also just quickly say the, the easy solutions don't work. National health care, cut foreign aid, zero out defense, go after welfare. None of, none of those get you anywhere close. The, the options are either reform social security and Medicare or tax the hell out of the middle class. Nothing else makes the numbers fully work. Thank you. Uh, Bill? <laughs> uh, I agree with everything Brian said, except until the last, the last thing. I think there, I, you know, the idea that we need entitlement reform, the idea that we, we have to consider raising taxes, that everything's on the table. Uh, I think uh, we will have to raise taxes on the middle class, but I think politically and economically, we need to raise taxes on high income uh, wealthy households and and uh, uh, adjust the business business taxation first. And I think there there's a couple of percent of GDP and revenue there. So I would say, is it a crisis? No. Is it something we should worry be worried about? Yes. Uh, what would make it a crisis if interest rates went up? If interest rates went up a lot, uh, 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 every everything else in the budget outlook is a problem and interest rates are, are saving us uh, right now. But let me, end on a, let me end on a positive note. We talked about how much debt was gonna be over the next 30 years, all right? And, and I forget the exact number, but it's a lot, 44 trillion or something like that. GDP over the next 30 years, I just did a back of the envelope calculation, is gonna be something like $900 trillion, all right? Maybe even a 
quadrillion dollars. I think that's what comes after. I think that's a thousand trillion. So we have a lot of resources that we can throw at this. And um, uh, that again, as I, that and low interest rates gives us time uh, to think about it. I agree with the notion that gradual solutions uh, would be better, but I don't, I don't want to uh, panic basically. It's something we should be worried about. It's not a house on fire though. That is good to hear. Thank you, Chris. So I'm going to be more pessimistic. I, I do think it is a house on fire. Um, you know, current the the uh, I I know uh, a lot of our our, our listeners tonight of uh, viewers have heard about the debt problem for a long time, and so it's a little bit like uh, someone crying wolf. Uh, but you know, government debt now is hitting a historic high. The it's it's hitting around the, its uh, historic peak in World War II uh, at 24 trillion dollars. If you think about it, each percentage point increase in the interest rate that the government borrows at adds about $240 billion to annual spending. Well, as a comparison, the total we spend, say, on the Department of Homeland Security is only $70 billion a year. And so, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, that increase in interest, interest costs is much more than we spend on, on most departments in Washington. Uh, and I, and I, I think we could be heading for a crisis. But here's one way to, to, to think about debt that I, to get to the fairness issue. You know, when, when uh, one party comes into office, say uh, a President Trump with a Republican Congress, they can pass all kinds of laws and regulations, say restricting, restricting civil liberties or something negative like, like that, let's say. Well, the citizens can rebel and throw them out and, and the other party can get uh, into power and repeal um, the laws from the, uh, the past Congress it didn't like. You can't do that with debt. Uh, once politicians today make these decisions to spend more than taxes, they put that debt as a legal liability on future Americans that they can't get out of. It ties the hands of future Americans. And I think it's just really unfair that we've made essentially $24 trillion worth of decisions here that is gonna get loaded on people in the future. Uh, I think the, the, uh, the solution here is to reduce spending uh, the Cato Institute website and, and websites of other think tanks in DC have lots of spending reduction ideas. Uh, I think uh, uh, Brian's right that the, the biggest problems are the two biggest entitlements, Social Security and Medicare. I do think we can get a lot of mileage to, by starting to get in Washington out of these uh, state and local areas uh, that really uh, state and local governments should be responsible for. Thanks a lot to everyone for participating. Thank you guys so much. I feel like we could talk about this for another hour, but uh, teachers got to tomorrow. <laughs> I know, and we, I think the teachers would stay on as well. Um, but we, uh, I just want to thank you guys. This was so interesting and so informative. I think you answered a lot of the questions we all have. And then when we're in the classroom and students ask us questions, I think you clarified a lot of these things for us. Um, so I really want to thank you guys for being here. It was really, really enjoyable. So thank you. Um, we are going to switch gears a little now. So I know a lot of you heard all this information and now you're going to wonder, how can I use this in my classroom? Well, we are really lucky to have Debbie Henney with us tonight to help you bring all of this information into your classroom. So Debbie is the curriculum director for the Foundation for Teaching Economics. In addition to writing lesson plans, Debbie regularly presents FT workshops, seminars, and week-long residential programs for teachers and students from around the country. Before joining FTE, she spent the first 10 years of her career teaching economics in high school classroom. 
and later championed economic education efforts as the executive director of the Arizona Council on Economic Education. She also currently works as an economics professor and runs the honors program at Mesa Community College in Mesa, Arizona. So everybody welcome Debbie and they are all yours. So help us bring all this into the classroom. Okay, thank you. Karen, I'm excited to see uh, a few familiar faces, but lots of new names I see here tonight. So let me go ahead and share share a screen here. We're gonna I'm gonna introduce you to a curriculum um, that FTE has created um, with the help of you know academic professionals that wrote some white papers for us, um, and and then we develop lessons to help you teach about the things that you actually heard about tonight. So I was excited to see you know, this is a topic and hopefully you'll find some useful tools here. So I think you guys can all see this. Are we, are we good, Karen? Yeah, okay. So I'll just to give you a quick overview, we're gonna, and then we'll do one of the activities together and I'll give you kind of an intro or an overview of all the activities. So you'll have something that you could use in your classroom tomorrow if you would like. So the curriculum, um, the first lesson is about, gives the students a history of our national debt. So I was amazed how Brian took, you know, history and just boiled it down into something very simple and very quick when, when it talks about kind of the history of the national debt. And that's what this lesson one really does. And there's a fun Kahoot activity that we'll do together. That's a great way to get the students interested in the topic, um, help address kind of what, what do they know? What do they wanna know? Uh, take on some of those myths that might be out there about the national debt. Um, so, and then you'll see there's a lesson about where, where does all of the spending um, go when you, when the students think about where they, uh, where, where, where they see government action taking place, the students, you know, there's a disconnect between where the money is actually spent and then um, where they think it's spent. So that's lesson two. Lesson three is all about, is it sustainable? And it uses one of our, um, a favorite resource that FTE, you know, that's put out by the Brookings Institute, but it's one of FTE's favorite resources for this curriculum, and that's the fiscal shift. Um, and it uses that as the base to teach and to engage students in an activity where they try to solve the problem. Lesson four is all about, you know, where are the numbers? So they get to actually look at federal budgets and compare them with, what we actually spend the money on. So budgets versus financial reports. And, and then there's even a, an appendix to that where they can we do the same with state level um, data. And then the last one, and I think it was William that talked a little bit about this, was this idea of, of how does it all, you know, how does the, the cake get made? This idea of public choice theory. And if we know what the problem is, we know what some possible solutions are, why is it so hard to get those things done? And so the students get to um, try that in lesson five. So all of these lessons are available on the FTE website at fte.org. You'll get a um, copy of this slide deck and there's even a direct link right to, if you wanna jump right to the curriculum homepage on our website, but it's pretty easy to find once you get there. In fact, I have the lesson, the web, FTE website up here, but you'll see there's a section for teachers. And for teachers, the, uh, we have, when you go to the teacher section, we have it broken up by programs. If you're interested in attending programs where we, FTE is a nonprofit organization, and we run programs like this, virtual programs for teachers, but also residential programs, and even in-person, you know, one-day kind of programs around the country. Um, and so you can check those programs out here, even, even college, um, if you are looking for econ graduate credit to, you know, help you in your 
um, teaching development, but we also have teacher resources, and this is where you would find lesson plans. And my favorite way to um, search the lesson plans is by our curriculum unit. So you can see those right at the top. You see making sense of the federal debt, um, budget, debt, and deficits. But you can also see our other um, curriculum units here like issues in inter international trade, um, for example. So we'll come back to our little activity here. Um, so we're gonna start out with this Mythbusters activity and I'm gonna let you actually play the Kahoot. So you're gonna join in. Um, if you have a mobile device, your cell phone, I usually have mine right next to me, but I moved it away. So pull up your cell phone and continue as a guest for this one. You're gonna see a code here on the screen. You're just gonna go to kahoot.it. Oh, and they've even added a QR code now. Once you go to kahoot.it, you're gonna, you don't have to download an app or anything. You can just enter this game pin 986-7778 for tonight. And you are gonna be playing for some Amazon gift card money. So I'll ask um, Karen or Alan or people in the background to help me keep track at the end, whoever our top three finishes are, they'll give me your email address and then you'll get an Amazon gift card from me. So you want to use score points um, by answering correctly and quickly. So the quicker your, your correct answer, the more points that you earn. And you can see your names popping up here on the screen. I don't have to tell you guys, but if you have, um, if you've done this with your students, you might have to remind them to keep the names appropriate. Somebody asked me to repeat the code. You can see it on my shared screen. It's 986-777. Eight. All right, I see lots of you joining here. Get this over so I can see how many we're waiting for. All right, I'll give you just another minute. I'm gonna type in the chat here. You're going for those of you just if you heard if you started paying attention when I said Amazon gift card, here's where you're going. Go to kahoot.it and you'll enter this pin, 986 There we go. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and push start. And here's your, you can still join after we've, after we've started. Don't worry, lots of people get lots of the questions wrong. All right, here's your first question. What is the size of the U.S. federal debt? Um, we'll say if currently, it said it at the end of 2021, but it'll get you close enough. 820 billion, that's red. 2.8 trillion, that's yellow. 28 trillion, blue. 82 trillion, green. This is total debt, not just debt owned by the public, but also the money the government owns its, owes itself. And it looks like even though tonight you saw numbers for total debt owed um, by or held by the public, it looks like most of you got this one correct. So 28 trillion, let's see who is in the lead. It's actually 29 trillion when I checked earlier tonight. All right, Sean is in the lead with Travis and Mark right behind. Let's go on to question number two. How does the US government borrow money? Red, they get loans from the Federal Reserve Bank. Yellow, by selling bonds to investors. 
blue by getting loans from the World Bank or green private loans from other countries. Okay, 22 of you got that one correct. They can sell bonds to investors. Lots of people can hold those bonds, even foreign governments. Um, even the Federal Reserve Bank can hold those bonds. And Sean is kept his lead, but Mark moved up to number two. Here's question number three. Has the federal government ever defaulted on its debt? Lots of answers coming in on this one. Oh, we're split. The 14 or 14 of you said yes, and that's the correct answer, but 13 of you said no. And let me pull up the details about this one. Actually, no, I'm not going to do that because I think we have another question. Whoops, let me move my Zoom screen off of there. Okay, here we go. Next question. Sean's in the lead with Mark. See Brown, look at Eric on fire. He's moved up onto the leaderboard. Okay, next question. When did the US government default on its debt? All right, we had eight people get this one correct. It actually happened in 1979. So it's happened once since Andrew Hamilton um, and since he was the first secretary of the treasury. Um, so in 1979, it happened when the treasury couldn't make payments on their treasury bills that matured April 26th, May 3rd and May 10th. So for three, those three series, three weeks in a row, and it was amidst a debt ceiling kind of showdown like we've seen today. And I think you heard, you heard one of the speakers speak about that today. And so, so eventually they were able to make the investors whole and pay them, but it, but it did increase interest rates um, about 60 basis points and they remained high for a while after that. So, so we have defaulted on our debt once before. All right, let's see who's in the lead now. Oh, we have some new, we have somebody named D. You're gonna have to figure out who that is if they move up onto the leaderboard. Sean is still at the top, Mark right behind. Which is the larger number effective the end of 2021? U.S. national debt, U.S. GDP, U.S. tax revenue, or U.S. federal spending? Okay, you were you were paying attention today. The national debt was even larger than GDP. Uh, so 16 of you have that correct. C Brown has moved into second place. Mark's moved down to number three. Who owes more money? US consumers as a whole, US state governments combined, US local governments combined or the US federal government? Okay, you guys, I didn't catch you. I didn't surprise you on that one, but it's the US federal government. Um, but at the end of last year, US state governments combined 
owed a little over 1.2 trillion. Local governments were over 2 trillion. Um, US citizens, 21.6 trillion. And the US government was approaching 29 trillion. All right, C. Brown is in the lead now. Sean at number two. We have Darcy and Stacy on the leaderboard. There's question seven. Who holds the most US government debt? Okay, this one was a little trickier. So we have um, the correct answer was US investors and 10 of you got that correct. So th about 35% of the debt is held by US investors, 25% by foreign investors, 21% by other US government um, programs and funds, and 18% by our own Federal Reserve Bank. Sean is in the lead now. Question number eight. Interest payments on the debt as a percentage of GDP are at an all-time high. Is this true? That would be blue or false? Red. The correct answer was false. A little over half of you got that correct. So currently, interest rates have ranged between 1.2 and 3% since 1962. Um, this is as a percentage of GDP. Currently, interest payments are 1.6% of GDP. In the 90s, they were 3%. So we're not, you know, as you know, at, at those um, rates yet, or currently, I should say. All right, we still have Chris, or I see Brown in the lead. And next question. If each US citizen pitched in $18,000, we could pay off the national debt. True, blue would be blue, or red would be false. All right, 18 of you said false, and 18,000 just isn't quite enough to cover it. Let's see who's in the lead. Um, C. Brown's still in the lead. Let me show you a fun little website that um, kind of updates real time. You may have seen this before, um, but it takes that total national debt and divides it per citizen. And right now, per citizen, it's $89,000, if you see there at the top left of the um, a screen. Go back here to our game. And we are on the last question, question number 10. The wealth of all billionaires in the US is enough to pay off the national debt and leave each with a billion dollars. True or false? And 20 of you said false. That's correct. Um, it sounds like you don't have as big of a problem with big numbers as our students often do. Often do. Uh, so I'll give you, here's our podium. Okay, help me keep track, Karen. In third place, we have Mark 
So Mark, in the chat, just so we make sure we get the right mark, put your reply and let us know that's you. Sean was in second place. And C. Brown was in third place. And so they'll let me know who, who those go to. But congratulations to you guys. And just to, just to help us kind of grasp these big numbers, we, we have over 600 billionaires in the United States and they have over $3.8 trillion in wealth. That's wealth, that's the total value of what they own. So that's 3.8 trillion. But remember these numbers we're talking about are like 29 trillion. So even if we took all their yachts and their boats and their houses, this problem is a little bit bigger than that. Trillion, trillion is a really big number. So, um, all right. I'm gonna jump back over here to our, so that was a lesson one, the activity that goes along with it. And it can be used, it's set up so that you can teach the concepts as you go and use the throughout the lesson. So you do an activity, you you know teach the content, go back to a question, teach more content, or you can do it just as a quick kind of intro attention getter like this, and then dive into some of the historical background about teaching about the national debt. Um, and you'll see similar kind of um, graphs and charts that you saw from the presentation today that you can use with your students. The second activity is my favorite. This one is called To the Penny, and it actually gets the students, they use a, um, 100 pennies and you put them into groups. So if you have the, if you get to teach your students face to face, they're actually using pennies um, to do this activity. If it's in a virtual environment, you can do it like this with Zoom and breakout rooms and a shared Google Doc where they're moving virtual pennies around and, and they can do the same thing. But I wanna show you a little video clip of this activity um, or parts of this video. Um, FTE has on their website, many of the activities have demonstration videos for the teachers that show you how to set up the activity, run it with your students. You get a picture of what the activity looks like in the classroom and then a guide on how to debrief the activity with your students. So they're not intended for you to show the students like, oh, look at this cool activity, but we're not gonna do it. It's more, it's really a quick little tutorial for you. So you feel comfortable running the activity in the classroom. If you're anything like me, sometimes I can have a print lesson in front of me and I'm flipping through it going, oh, that's too much. I don't know. It's much easier for me if I can see what it's gonna look like, I'm more likely to use it in the classroom. And so this is the latest one, our web developers, it's actually in their queue to add this to the website for this lesson. I'm gonna jump to and just and show you a part of groups this. Of four. And give each group a bag of pennies and a copy of handout one. Explain that each penny represents 1% of spending in the federal budget. And have them arrange their pennies on handout one just as they think they are allocated in the federal budget. For example, if they think agriculture is 3% of total spending, they should place three pennies in the agriculture box. So you have a handout that looks like this, and it has 14 different categories, everything from agriculture and administration of justice down to social security and veterans benefits, okay? Um, so you start allocating, all the pennies have to be on here somewhere, just stack them in the appropriate boxes. You wanna try to get as close to our federal budget. And I'm gonna give you a little hint. We're gonna do the allocation pre-COVID, okay? And then later I'm gonna show you what it looks like post-COVID. But for now, we're just gonna do pre-COVID. Um, well, how do you think those the proportion of pennies are allocated to these categories, all right? 
Yeah, yeah, it can be 55. Oh, yeah, my bad, my bad. Um, so, science, space, and technology, I think we care about that. I think we're just, yeah, because of the FBI and stuff. Transportation has a TSA. Are they? I don't think they got it. Isn't that like, um, what is it called? You know how to get payments for like being after students have had a few minutes to allocate their pennies, display visual one to show the actual allocations. Use the chart in the lesson materials to provide some examples of the types of things that are included in each category. For example, administration of justice includes Explain the difference between mandatory and discretionary spending. Elected officials have the ability to change discretionary spending from year to year as part of the annual budget and appropriations process. Mandatory spending, on the other hand, is determined by law or prior commitment made by government, so it can't be changed as part of the annual budget and appropriations process. So your job now, let me give you the new handout, is to, on this form, I want you to cover, with the pennies you have, every penny that you think represents mandatory spending. Cover it with a real penny, okay? Uh, I'm thinking the uh, environment one is mandatory because we have like laws in place with national parks and stuff where you have to protect them. And so I feel like that would be towards that. Yeah. Yeah. With Social Security, they're like talking about getting rid of it or something, I think. Okay, so during this part of the activity, they're, you know, they're guessing as, and kind of making their predictions about how much of the budget is mandatory versus discretionary. And then there's a third part of the activity where they, they learn how much of that money do we actually have tax revenue available for. So I can post right here. For the second part of this activity, have the students count out the number of pennies that represent the total amount of money the federal government brings in through revenue, or taxes. With this group of students, we chose to use a pre-COVID budget where 78 of the 100 pennies represented tax revenue, as opposed to the 52 or 56 pennies that represented tax revenue during the years with COVID relief spending. The lesson materials include information on how to find the current revenue and spending projections provided by the Congressional Budget Office. Using all federal government spending is mandatory spending, and it's largely spent on entitlement programs. As mandatory spending is projected to grow, decision makers, in this case, legislators, face tough decisions and trade-offs. Do they spend less on discretionary categories like defense, education or infrastructure? Do they borrow more money and commit future spending to fund consumption today? Do they raise taxes? Or do they make changes to laws to change mandatory spending? Even the choices made by decision makers in government have opportunity costs. So this activity is designed to just engage, you know, first, give students the, the, the actual numbers, let them you know, play around, make decisions. That last part of the activity, they are proposing their own solutions about how, do we, how are we gonna cover this shortfall um, and what are some of those options? And it's not, you know, the answers aren't given to them, but it engages them in those discussions. 
and it sets up the other activities that are part of the curriculum unit. So each of these activities can be used on its own or um, as, you know, standalone, but they also build on each other. So I mentioned this fiscal ship activity um, where they actually, we, when you play the game online, if you haven't checked it out, just go, just Google fiscal ship, you'll find the, the tool. Um, but the students have to pick priorities. And so we actually have them set this up ahead of time. It's just sending your students there and saying, play the game for high school students. They need a little more prep than that. And so we have them pick their priorities, what's important to them. And so this handout is taken from the priorities they're gonna encounter in the game. And they choose what's important to them. Is it protecting the elderly, reducing inequality, cutting taxes? And once they've, they choose their governing goals, they play the game. And the students can do this in class, you know, on their own time, you can have them do it outside of class. And then, but either way it's designed so that then they come together in a group and they share their, the, their, their outcomes or their solutions. I was actually surprised when I do this with students, how often they actually, somebody will be able to solve the problem. So for, you know, I'm a little, I'm kind of a pessimist, but I'm, it, their, their takeaway always though is, but it was hard. I was surprised at how, how give, you know, pursuing one goal often meant that I couldn't have the other goal or to get this, I, I couldn't also do this. And so they're confronted with those, you know, the real costs of choices, even in the realm of government. Um, a quick overview of this words and deeds activity. Everybody talks about the budget. When the budgets come out, it gets all the media, all the press, the news, and when the financial reports, so after we, you know, we, the budget is the plan, then we go about that year. And then we turn, we have a financial report that says how we actually spent the money and, and how the revenue actually came in. Um, but when the financial report comes out, you can hear a pin drop, you know, no, nobody talks about it. And so, except maybe our policy wonks that come to these kind of things, they probably listen for that financial report. And so this activity has the students looking at some the visuals that come out from the Congressional Budget Office um, that are published in the Financial Report of the United States, and they compare those visuals and do the math themselves and see how well did we stick to that budget. Um, just to show you a couple, this is and and it also lets them do pre and post, you know, COVID spending. So here's just a sample of the the spending um, in 2019. The plan you'll see in the chart on the right was 4.4 trillion, but we actually spent 5.1 trillion. We were a little better on revenue. We planned to bring in 3.5 and we brought in 3.6. Uh, 2020, when the students compare this one, this is post you know, COVID or with the COVID spending. And you can see how the big, those big categories of social security and Medicare, relatively speaking, don't look as big this year. Um, when we had lots of other new categories that were large enough to be you know, named on their own, like the Paycheck, Paycheck Protection Program. Either way, we planned, the plan was to spend 6.6 .6 trillion, we actually spent 7.4 trillion. So this activity has students engage with that. And then there's an addendum that lets them look at the state level data, um, comparing the fiscal health of their own state and looking at some other states as well. So one of the speakers tonight brought up um, how balanced budget, you know, how balanced budget amendments or requirements don't work. Lots of states have balanced budgets, yet they have, you know, they end up going more in debt each year. And so students figure out how, how they manage, you know, ways they find to get around that 
if they if you do that activity. And then also one of my favorites, the last one is the public choice in action, where the students actually take on the role of a legislator, a representative in Washington, DC. And they have a, a roll card that shows you know, their constituents and different policies. These policies, are, again, are taken from proposals in the fiscal shift activity. And they have to decide you know, wh which one of these am I going to support you know, as, a, as a proposal for you know, helping with our budget problem. And how does that also affect my ability to get reelected? And it, you know, <laughs> balancing those things aren't, aren't the easiest, but also a great activity to engage them in that process. So that's the kind of the overview of the curriculum unit. Um, I hope it's useful for you. And I'll just leave this slide up here at the end with some upcoming programs that FTE has. Uh, you probably won't be able to make it to Arizona by this weekend for when we have an economic issues for teachers program. But we have other similar programs you know, throughout the year, including these online courses that come with optional graduate credit from the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs and it's econ um, graduate credit. And then we have one day seminar, virtual seminars, virtual workshops like this one on is the supply chain broken um, coming up. So uh, Karen, I'll let you decide how you wanna handle if you wanted questions or wanna wrap how you wanna wrap it up from here. I think we're good. I just wanna thank you Debbie for sharing with us. Um, these resources are amazing. Uh, FT always has quality resources. Um, but these are the way these five different activities. I love it. So um, I taught a push so and government and um, AP macro. So any of you teachers that have not been to their website or done any of their other programs, please go to their website. They have qual all their programs are very high quality. So Debbie, that was so much fun. But now I'm going to have the Kahoot song stuck in my head for the rest of the night. So thank you. Um, if you if you have any questions, please just uh, email myself or Alan and we will get all of this info to you sometime probably a little later this week. It'll have all the links, all the slideshows, all this information. Um, thank you all for being here tonight. I hope you learned some interesting content. And now thanks to Debbie, you can have these fun activities to bring all this information into your classroom. So thank you everyone. And I hope to see everybody at another webinar. Have a good night.